0: This last Friday evening, many members of the community gathered together to give support to Royal Family Kids Camp. Some of our community leaders were there, including Judge Stephanie Dimitrovich, our state representative, Ryan Bizarro, and then the former first lady of Pennsylvania, Michelle Ridge, they were there to help give support, and we're thankful for that. We recognize the fact that when you can change a group of children, you can actually change a community. And you're gonna hear more about that this morning. Our guest this morning also spoke on Friday night. Glenn Garvin can relate to the lives of these children, having grown up in a dysfunctional home, having two fathers and three mothers. I'm sorry, wrong way around. Three, uh, three fathers, two mothers, and one of those fathers was so dysfunctional he took his own life while Glenn was age 12. He is the director, the vice president of camps at Royal Family Kids Home. Uh, prior to joining Royal Family Kids Camps, He also pastored for 18 years. He has such an incredible heart for these kids, and we wanted him to come this morning and share with you his own life story and what a change putting your faith in Jesus can do and how it can also change a child. Would you please welcome this morning Glenn Garvin?
1: Thanks, Pastor. Wow, it is good to be here. Yes, it is uh, not snowing where I come from. It is, it is uh, sunny and bright. And I've already told a few folks, I said, we have the same issues in California. It takes me about 10 minutes to scrape the sunshine off my windshield. And it takes me about 10 or 15 minutes to sweep the, su- the sunshine off my sidewalk. So I, I can relate. I feel... I feel your pain. I had a great time sweeping the snow off the car this morning. Joel let me do it. He said, you really want to? I said, yeah, I don't get to do this. So that was fun. Hey, let me, let me find out here who, is, uh, who works with social services in any way. Just real quick. Anybody in here work with social services in any capacity? I see a couple. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. How about foster parents? Do we have foster parents here in the room? I know there's a few. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for what you do. That is amazing. Thanks. And uh, I am just grateful for all that you do this morning. Well, I, am, uh, I, am, I love the Word of God. I love what I do. and working with Royal Family Kids. I, I also want to bring greetings from Wayne and Diane Tesh, the founders of Royal Family Kids. Um, and pastor is kind of related to the founder in some way. We'll keep that on the down low there. But anyways, I want to get right into the Word of God this morning. I grew up as a child of the 60s. About the same time that Neil Armstrong planted the first footsteps on the moon, and I was in grade school, sorry for you teachers out there, but as the teacher was teaching, I was dream doodling. How many of you do this when you are kind of passively listening, you're drawing out cartoons and characters? You see, in the 60s, there was a resurgence of comic book style heroes. And so as these comic books began to come out, it it had a huge influence on me, and I grew up really aspiring to be a hero. And so what I was, was dream doodling about is usually it was a, a rescue operation that I would draw on paper, and I was rescuing the cute girl in the back of the class. And it was always those kind of scenarios. Or sometimes it would be a co-op with a buddy of mine, and we would be rescuing the girl in the front of the class. But there was always some kind of heroic edge to everything that I did. I still remember a few times as a kid going to sleep at night and dreaming about flying. I loved dreams about flying through the air. And what I realized about heroes is that really, I think inside, everybody wants to be a hero. We wanna see justice happen. We wanna see the innocent protected and guarded. And uh, I came across a few heroic stories. One of them might be in the PowerPoint in here. I throw up this picture about Wesley, Wesley Autry. This was a guy that you may or may not have heard of. Wesley was on the uh, the subway uh, platform in Chicago, and what happened is a man next to him began to have a seizure, and pretty soon the man fell off of the platform and onto the train tracks below, and he was still having a seizure down there. And without thinking, Wesley jumped off of the platform. I'm not going to do it here because there's stairs. I would end up hurting myself. But he went off the platform and he pinned his body on top of the man while he was having the seizures and the subway passed right over his body. He said in the interview that he could feel the train going across and it was just making the hair on the back of his head stand up as it went across. The the interesting thing was, you see the girls, those are Wesley's girls. They were on the platform that day and they thought dad had jumped to his death. But he had jumped down to rescue someone else, a true modern-day hero. I believe that there's a lot of those heroes around in our life. I know one thing about heroes. Anytime you have got a hero that comes on the scene, you know there is great harm and conflict and danger that has to be there for a hero to be present, right? Right? You can't have a hero step in unless there's a real need, a real reason for that. One of my favorite all-time heroic stories out of the Bible is in the Old Testament. How many of you want to guess what that might be? Favorite old old, Old Testament heroic story. I heard somebody say it. Exactly. I loved hearing stories about David and Goliath. Now, I accepted Christ later on, about 15 and a half, but when I did, I, I came to love pastors that would, that would do sermons on David and Goliath. Pastor Jack, have you done some sermons on David and Goliath? I heard a little bit mentioned today. I, I love the sermons about David and Goliath. The one that we're, I remember the most became kind of important of how it's going to tie in this morning, and that is, you know, I, I, uh, I got saved in a, uh, an Assemblies of God church, so I have to tell you, the preacher was kind of charismatic. A little wild. I don't know. I don't know how pastor is, but this guy was pretty wild. And he, he was doing this sermon on uh, David and Goliath. Now, do you remember in the story, there's this little scene where there's he where David picks up five rocks? How many of you remember that? It's a detail in there in the story. Good. Hey, you read it. Good. That's awesome. So he gets this one part, you know, and he says, do you want to know why David picks up five stones? And I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm just a student sitting in the I'm so excited about it. And then he says, just in case, Goliath had four other brothers. And I'm like, oh, that is great. I mean, come on, that is a great story. It was, it was years later. In fact, it was not all that long ago that I'm reading in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And as I'm reading, I come across more giants And it hits me. There were more than one giant in the Old Testament. How many of you are aware of this? Goliath was not the only giant. There were four more. And in 2 Samuel 21, you know, the author Samuel goes into this detail, and it's amazing. Now... I want you to think about what it would have been like, because you've heard this story, for, you know, it's David and Goliath many times. But really, put yourself in the, in the seat or the mindset of maybe young David there, and God comes to you and whispers in your ear, kill the giant, save the nation. That responsibility, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. Given the same set of circumstances, that's an amazing, heroic act of faith that takes place at that moment. I want you to put up on the screen the uh, scripture itself out of 2 Samuel 21, just the first part there. I don't know if you can read that from here, but I want you to see the story for yourself, so you want to open up to 2 Samuel 21. Some of you may not believe what I'm going to tell you, so I need you to keep me honest here. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with uh, his men to fight against the Philistines, and because he was exhausted. And it says that Ishbai Banab, one of the descendants, I'm having a hard time seeing him, of Raphia, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, and who was armed with a new sword. And I like to say he was armed with a new sword that was sharpened with revenge. So there's this whole scene that goes on, that's right there in the Word of God, where there's another, there's this giant that appears on the scene. His name is Ishbi Banab, and he is about to kill David. Now I thought you guys are awesome. This is the first time I've actually had a cool prop like this. The Bible says that he has a spear. I don't know how many shekels this weighs, but and he says, the Bible says that he is about bit Ishbi is about to kill David. And what I thought I'd do is I would like some little audience participation in here. And so we're going to practice a little bit. Because what's going to happen is I'm going to raise the spear, as ish and ab would have, to kill David. But as I raise the spear, I want the men in the room to give me a little dramatic music. And so I, I'm, we're going to practice because we're not there yet. But you, you need to practice this because sometimes the women do much better with their part. And I'll tell you that in a second. Okay, so men's, what I'm going to happen, I'm going to raise the spear, and that's your cue for dramatic music. You know, let's do dun-dun-dun. Okay, can you guys do that? That's kind of manly, isn't it? Dun-dun-dun. Are you guys awake this morning? Okay. I I just make sure. Okay, so raise the spear. Right off the bat, you guys hit it. Scotty, right there in the front row. I love it. Good job. Okay, but the girls have to do their part, too, because... You know, normally, I'm not trying to be sexist here, but normally, you know, when there's something scary, women scream. So what I need for girls is I need you to scream really loud. So when I raise the spear, guys, then I need the girls to follow up with a really nice terror scream. I mean, something that you are going to just blood-curdling terror scream. Can you do that? Let's, let's try it. Okay, guys, do this. And then, oh, that is really, that is really good. I am proud of you. That's, whew, that was just practice too. All right, so, so what happens is uh, the Bible says that David is exhausted from the battle and that he, and Ishmael Ben Ab is getting ready, getting ready to kill him. And the Bible says that he begins to raise the spear. Oh, good. That is awesome. But as any great story, I'm going to create a cliffhanger right here. I'm not going to tell you how the story ends just yet. Because what I want you to do is I want you to imagine back in the field. I'm going to lay that here so I don't hurt myself. I want you to imagine in 1 Samuel 17, back when David is going out to face the giant, I want you to put yourselves in the situation of the men that are watching this event roll out. And I want you to ask yourself, as you see young David, maybe a teenager, pick up these stones, and he's going out there to go against the giant with with a sling, and the giant has got armor on. You know how the story goes. But you are the audience. You are the folks that are watching what is happening. And I want to ask you a question. As the audience watching David go out there, what are you thinking as David walks out to meet this giant? He's dead. All right, that's a good one. Yes, my thought when I'm reading the scripture is I would honestly be thinking, I hope there's a plan B. I've heard he's crazy. And really the honesty of it is I don't really think there was many people thinking there was high success that was going to be happening. But watch this. So David does pick up that one stone and he hurls that rock into that giant's forehead and it hits him at that precise place And knocks him down and kills the giant. Even says that he takes his own sword and cuts off his head. But that's like, that's the cool guy part of it. (laughs) Now, you're still the audience. You've witnessed the before. But now you've seen this young man do this impossible feat. Now, what are you thinking? That's good. Awesome. Let me tell you what a few men had to have thought as they watched David go out and kill that giant. There were a few men that said, if David can do it, maybe someday I can too. And David created the first giant killers club. It, it's, it's, a small, it's a small group uh, Bible study. The only way you can get into the Giant Killers Club is to kill a giant. And there was something there that happened because as the men that watched thought the impossibility was going to be there, but then they saw David do it, they said to themselves, well, if, if David can do it, maybe I can too. And that came in handy that giant killer's club mentality, that, that scene that took place in the Old Testament where David killed the giant and these men watched, that became a very necessary step. I realized there was a principle here. It takes a hero to defeat one just to show that it can be done. Okay, back to our scene here. It's a good thing because ish banam picks up his spear. He's ready to kill David. You're on top of it. Girls... And the Bible says that Abishai, you can throw that up there on the screen. It says that Abishai steps in and kills that giant. This guy has been waiting for the opportunity, waiting for the opportunity for his giant to show up because he knew if David could do it, he could too. Hit it again. There was another giant and there was another giant killer. Hit it again. There's another giant and another giant killer. There were four more giants mentioned in the Old Testament, and each one of them were faced with a giant that they had to put down. So look at the way that math works in the kingdom of God. God actually had David kill five giants really because he showed four other guys how to do it. Not far from the truth because Goliath's own brother was one of those giants. And if you keep going through the last, the last one there, it's Jonathan that puts down that giant. This is David's own nephew. You talk about a family DNA that gets transferred. This is how it works. It takes a hero to defeat one just to show that it can be done. How many records have been set that someone else broke? How fast? How high? How many things have been done that said, oh, that's impossible. But once somebody did it, then it became somebody else could say, I can do it too. That was a very critical step in my life, as Pastor described. I came from a, you know, chaotic, dysfunctional family. Yeah, two moms and three dads. My birth mom I've never met. My birth father was in and out of drug rehab. I was adopted at four years old into an alcoholic family. My adopted father's alcoholism just kind of created all kinds of havoc in our family violence and issues going on. And eventually my adopted parents divorced and then my adopted father killed himself. My mother remarried, I call Psychopath Ben. That's not his real name, but this is the name that I've given him because he was just a mean, manipulative man. Angry and frustrated, most of that was taken out on us. So I had to put life together. I had to figure out how to do things. I had to figure out how to be a man. I had to figure out how to live in this world. And it was really difficult. It took five adults to mess up my life and one Jesus Christ to redeem it. These are the odds when God is working in someone's life. So, one, if you're here and you're wondering if you can make it or if you can break the cycle or if you can get out of the the dysfunctionality of your past or your family, I am telling you, I am proof of that. And if I can do it, you can too. But the other one is we need models. When I was nine years old, I went over to a friend's house. He was my best friend. Now, I, was never, I really could never have over, anybody over to my house because it was just all this chaos, and it was difficult. I never had anybody spend the night. But one time, I got the opportunity to spend the night at a friend's house. His name was Frank, and he was a good friend. I went over to his house and gathered around for the, de- the family dinner time. And I remember it was really interesting because as I walked in the house, I got, went through the door, I could feel that there was safety There was peace, there was love in the house. Can you feel the difference in the way a home even exists? I knew the way my home was, but I stepped into Frank's home. I didn't find out for years later that Frank's dad was a pastor. Because I didn't know that. He was just a guy to me. So Frank and his family sit down, and he's got two sisters, and they were all nice, and they're talking, and it was just a very fun time together. But around the family dinner table, there's a scene. I just grabbed a picture. This is not Frank's family, but it's just an illustration. And I'm sitting around the table, and something really, really weird happened just before we ate. Frank's dad closed his eyes, bowed his head, and put his arms out like this. I had no idea what was happening. And I was scared to death, so I kept one eye open. (laughs) Because I was watching what's going on. Frank's dad said a simple prayer over the evening meal. It was so shocking to me. It was so unusual that I had never seen anything like this. I want to tell you what happened. I took a snapshot picture. That picture went down into my mind, down into my heart. And I said to myself, even as a nine-year-old little boy, if ever there was a miracle And I had a family in my future. One day, I am going to pray with my family because now I see how it works. That model, that picture. Well, fast forward quite a few years, I did get married. I married the pastor's daughter. I married not his daughter, but I married one of the pastor's daughters that went to the church when I was a teenager. We had three kids. I want to ask you the question, what do you think I did as a brand new husband and father around the dinner time? I did. Not just did I pray, but I closed my eyes and I bowed my head and I put my arms out and we hold hands around the dinner table as I pray. Why would I do that? Because it takes a hero to defeat one just to show that it can be done. It took someone to show that to me No real words were spoken. It was the prayer. It was what I saw, and I captured it, and I repeated it in my future. I want you to go a little further into the the future with me. I'm now 17 years old, and I'm dating this pastor's daughter. I go over to the pastor's house. I'm very nervous because I don't know what goes on in those pastor's homes. And I honestly didn't know how to behave, so I was trying to behave really well. I Was trying not to do things that maybe would be offensive in a pastor's home, but I was there on a school night, and uh, it was getting late. And my girlfriend's brother and sister began to get ready for bed, and so her sister comes down the stairs, and she's got her jammies on, and she bounces over to mom, and mom says a few words to her, and and then she goes over to dad, and you know he does the same, and it's all this like a you know leave it to beaver scene, and I'm like oh that's really cute, and it, I'm all impressed, you know. And then it was interesting because Robin's uh, brother comes downstairs, and he's in his jammies as well, and he comes over and sees his mom, and they say a few things, and, and then he makes his way over to his dad. Now, I'm sitting on the couch, and I'm watching all this take place, and I'm kind of, you know, oh, this is very touching and very tender, but what begins to unfold just kind of blows my mind because as Ron sits down next to his dad, I see Robin's dad lean over and kiss Ron. And I could hear the words that his dad spoke to him, and those those words just blew me away. I heard his dad say, I love you, son. And I'm just sitting on the couch like this. I'm frozen. It was. It felt like the scariest thing I'd ever seen in my life because I'd never witnessed this before. I've never seen a father treat a son that way. So I'm getting ready to leave, and I'm in the driveway, and uh, I I just can't help it. I I ask Robin, and I I ask her in in as crazy a way as I can. It's like, What was the deal with your dad kissing your brother and saying that I love you? Trying to to make it as weird and strange as I could. And she said, oh, he does that all the time. And in that moment, a picture was taken. A powerful picture. Snap. The picture that I put into my heart was one day, If there is a miracle, and I were to ever have a son, I will kiss him, and I will tell my son that I love him. Because it takes a hero to defeat one just to show that it can be done. It takes a model. It's those moments in my life that began flushed out in the future when I said, I have seen how it should be, I have seen what the world should look like, and I am now able, if things happen well, I am able to do that. I already told you I married that pastor's daughter. Robin and I have been married for 30 years. (laughs) I already told you we had kids. We have David, who's 26, and Matthew is 24 years old, and our daughter, Janae, is 21 years old. But let me ask you, what do you think? Our firstborn was a son. What do you think I did With David. I did. From the moment every one of my children came home from the hospital, as just little, little bitty ones, daddy kissed his children and said, I love you. Recreating that model that I had seen. It is so important of what the children see when they're younger, as they get older, they say, I can do that. Now, my boys are older now, 26 years old. It's not quite as easy to wrestle them down for kisses and hugs and, and all that stuff, <laughs> I can tell you. And the joke I like to tell you is my, uh, my 24-year-old son, he's taller than I am, he's bigger than I am, and I, I remember clearly asking Matthew, don't hug Daddy so tight because you're going to break a rib. So. <laughs> but it is a joy to kiss my children goodnight before I leave on a trip or when I go anywhere and tell them, I love you. My children will not go a day or a moment in life without knowing that their dad loves them. Because someone showed me how to do it. We took took a little guy to camp. His name is Jonathan. When I got back from camp, we had a, I had a really uh, difficult thing happen. The social worker called me the, the Monday after camp was over and simply asked me a question. She said, What did you do to Jonathan? It scared me half to death. It's like, um, so I gave her a good pastoral response. I said, What do you mean, what did we do to Jonathan? <laughs> it's pretty good, huh? I'm sure Pastor Jesus has this before. I said, What do you mean? She says, Well, you didn't know about anything about Jonathan's backstory. I didn't. We only had his application. She said, well, Jonathan has been in therapy since he was three years old. He's tried to take his life twice. He's been moved in and out of foster care seven times. He has got violent behavioral outbursts. He's on you know, different kinds of medications. He's got a foul mouth. And as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, I don't remember that little guy at camp. Did I tell you he's only eight years old? How do you get that much garbage crammed into a little eight-year-old life? What kind of... Th- what kind of Three-year-old has a therapist. My heart is just going out, and I said, "Well, what happened?" She said, "Well, we got back from camp. He went to his, you know, his psychiatrist that he's got. The psychiatrist noticed a few things about Jonathan immediately. One, Jonathan looked him in the eyes. Jonathan was smiling. Jonathan was humming some tunes that the psychiatrist had never heard." And he kept talking about this guy named Andy. It really bugged the psychiatrist because he thought, who is doing intense psychotherapy on this child? I want to know. I want to know because he's, doing, he's having progress. You know how it is in the field. Something's working. He called the social worker and he said, hey, what happened to this little guy? Marnie said, I don't know. He went to a camp specially designed for him. And the psychiatrist said, could you find out what they did to him? Isn't that great? So Marnie says, what did you do to Jonathan. Well, now I can answer. We simply loved him. He had an amazing week at camp. None of those behaviors came out because Andy, who was his counselor, was a model for him. And Jonathan could see how life was supposed to be. It took a hero to defeat one just to show that it could be done Jonathan was in and out of foster care so many times. The last family he was with had seen such radical change in his life, they decided to adopt him. And after that conversation with Marnie, Jonathan was adopted that November before Thanksgiving into his forever family. God does this work in these children's lives, in these moments at camp and the club and mentors because they see a different model. I encourage you, if you get a chance, you need to go to this camp. You need to be a part of Club and Mentor. If you can't go, give. Give. Get one of these children to camp because they will take snapshot after snapshot after snapshot of how life is supposed to be. I want you to watch this video clip. Can one week really make a difference? Can what we do make a difference? Let Samantha tell you her story. Thank you.
2: For over two decades, Royal Family Kids has been confronting abuse and changing lives. They serve children who have been neglected, children who have been the innocent victims of every type of abuse imaginable. Royal Family Kids has introduced hope into the story of thousands and thousands of children of abuse. This is Samantha's story.
3: Someone called to get me out of my house, and I have no idea who it was. All I know is the police showed up at the door with social workers and caseworkers, and um, I don't know who called. And I was like, it was an angel then, you know. God was was there with me, and he was like, okay, it's time for this to end. And he made someone feel compassionate enough to call, and that's how I was saved.
2: If Samantha had not been taken out of her. Um, original home. She probably would have wound up dead at some point, and nobody would have known, and nobody would have missed her because nobody knew about her. Samantha was considered to be the worst case of abuse um, in Greene County, Missouri.
3: I was abused from five to eight. So at five, most kids don't remember a lot, but from what happened to me, I remember just about everything. Memories of um, what my dads did to me,
2: You could tell she had been an abused kid. She had lots of scars on her body. Her hair was really messed up. Very tiny, had been malnourished.
3: I never knew um, what was going to happen, when was going to happen. So I was scared most of the time.
2: Samantha had to use liquid soap if she wanted to brush her teeth. She had to eat on the floor. When she was thirsty and didn't want the parents to hear the water running, she took off the back of the toilet and scooped up water in the back of the toilet to drink.
3: When I'd be taken to the basement to get beaten, I'd be like, am I gonna get out of here alive? So there's still times in life where like something happens or someone says something and it just like hits me and it's just like a slap in the face.
2: When I first met her at camp, um, she never smiled.
3: There was nothing happy in my life. So why would I need to be smiling for anything?
2: By the end of the week of camp, she was smiling. We have pictures of her smiling, uh, which was just an amazing change.
3: You know, it was the best week of my life, my summer. For the first time in eight years, I had fun, and I was treated like a normal kid. These were the very first of my life. I don't remember any time in the past where I was given a gift.
2: She had never um, been swimming. She had never been fishing. Just a lot of things that she had never done before. She was very eager um, to participate in all the activities.
3: But these are the first where you're just extremely happy. And um, 10 years later, I still remember them. And this camp is important. It does change lives.
2: We're, We're there to touch these kids, but at the same time, these kids touch our hearts as well.
3: my
0: name, He knows my every thought.
2: Samantha was just like on the the edge of her seat, just waiting for the opportunity to come back to camp um, and to serve.
3: I get to be a counselor for the first time and I am so excited. I cannot wait till camp. This is my chance to make a difference in their life. Never going to camp would completely have changed my life. You know, I want to be where I am today. I want to be with the family I was. You know, that's where I met my mom. She fell in love with me there.
2: I think a week can make an amazing difference um, in a child's life. If Samantha hadn't have gone to royal family, I just wonder, would she have the hope? Would she have the successes? Would she have the achievement?
3: And not going to camp, would I still be bouncing from foster family to foster family? would I have ended up, you know, on the streets running away without camp? You know, life would completely be different.
2: I think God saw Samantha. He looked down on this little girl, and I think he just, um, I think he has intervened. Um, she was a child that should have had so many difficulties, so, so many problems, so many disorders to overcome. And to look at where she was and where she is today. I mean, God's just done a huge work in her life.
0: Father, thank you for what you did for Samantha and for thousands of children every summer. And thank you for the opportunity that we have to be part of that. So we not only ask that you will bless this offering and multiply it so many more children will know what real love is, but you will help us connect with those children in Erie County, and the response will be great, and the ability to take even more kids than we have in the past will be there for us. So we give you thanks for this opportunity. We know that it gives you pleasure. So again, we ask you to bless this offering in Jesus' name, amen.